Welcome to the Epic Impact Society podcast, where we discover the stories behind those artists, innovators, educators, and creative leaders making an epic impact in our world today. Produced by Firebrand, digital marketing and behavioral strategy. Tap into what makes people tick. Drive results. Learn more at firebrand.net. Welcome to the Epic Impact Society podcast. We are broadcasting from Epic, so uh, we get a chance to actually talk with guests uh, in the same room, which is a, a fun uh, difference for us, and we're enjoying that. Um, today, I have the great pleasure of talking with Nicholas Gillis. He is an award-winning screenwriter, film director. Um, uh, he's from Stockholm, Sweden, currently in pre-production on The Nix, a Scandinavian folklore drama uh, film starring Academy Award-winning actor Liv Ullman. Uh, the film is produced by Patrick Anderson of Midsummer, uh, with distribution by Nordisk Film. Excellent. Well, thank you for being here, and thank you for sharing in uh, the epic experience. Um, what's something that you're working on right now that uh, you'd like to tell us about? Um, well, that is the thing I'm working on uh, at the moment. Um, but I'm also writing... Uh, two other projects, those are currently on non-disclosure agreements, unfortunately. So the only one I'm at liberty to discuss is um, this one, as far as current projects go. Mm. Well, tell us about this project. Um, it's based on the uh, legends of the Nix, which is this um, uh, folkloric uh, being, sort of seducer spirit of the woods that Swedish people believed in um, up until uh, the Industrial Revolution and, and uh, beyond in uh, Christianity is seen as an incarnation of the devil, um, this kind of false prophet, seducer spirit. And the film is set in the year of famine, 1867, which uh, was a time in which Swedish, pe Swedish farmers were starving to death. Um, it was also a time when Swedish people were very religious, so they believed in a Christian God that would punish people in uh, life if they were sinful and reward people in life if they were good. And so when this family that has been saying their prayers and doing all the right things are hit with famine, it sort of mm -hmm. tears the family apart um, because they wonder who brought God's wrath upon them. So that's what right. tears the family apart. And that's when this false prophet sort of emerges to present an alternate version of life, which is very seductive to the daughter of the family but uh, ultimately the lesson is that you can't fall for easy answers you know you have to face life in all its complexity and accept it as it is or ideally to learn to love it regardless of how bleak it may seem well, it sounds like um, a myth that was important not just at that time but important now we are living in a time where there are uh abundant uncomfortable truths to be faced and addressed and um and perhaps like no time ever in our history uh abundant distractions and ways to avoid that truth yeah exactly i personally think that the uh, you know nature of reality is fundamentally incomprehensible and but we need you know, some sort of structure with which to relate to, to reality. Um, and it's very attractive to find easy answers. I think probably that's one of the reasons why Trump was so successful. He's able to paint, you know, an idea mm -hmm. that uh, is attractive to a lot of people um, when the truth might be much more complicated. Yeah, that, that uh, 
resonates with with my own theory about you know why it is that we're seeing these kinds of political movements. Uh, not to get too political, um, I must stay, say that the Epic Impact Society does not endorse or you know, propose any particular political agenda. Uh, but I, what I do think is interesting is, you know, these, these sort of more fundamentalist right-wing movements, you know, they're not just an American situation. It's something which is happening all over the world. Mm. And uh, I guess the theory that I have had is that um, when you are bombarded with so much information— when there is so much cognitive dissonance, that's something that's just very uncomfortable. Yeah. And, um, and I think that people, uh, it is in a certain way understandable that people would be looking for um, a, a way to remove that cognitive dissonance and a pathway to that is choosing uh, a plan or a party or a person uh, for whom uh, the truth becomes a matter of loyalty. Yeah that kind of reduces all of that noise very, very quickly. Um, yeah, I think most people uh, buy ideologies wholesale, you know. Uh, you just buy into a particular culture and, uh, and live according to those uh, doctrines. Um, but I've never belonged to any group um, or uh, clan or tribe or, or any such thing. I love going from different bubbles, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that are as diverse as possible. And it's absolutely fascinating to learn the diversity of of belief systems. Um, it's one of the main benefits of living abroad. You know, I moved from Sweden to America when I was 19. And as anyone who grows up anywhere, I thought that the values that I'd been raised with were the obvious right ones. Mm-hmm. And I came to America and I realized that all of them were sort of turned upside down and what was progressive in Sweden is conservative here or what's right there is wrong here and what's intelligent there is stupid here and vice versa and so and I think most people just assume that their values are correct and the new values they encounter are wrong Um, but to me it made me I started to think how likely is it that I just happened to be born into a country with all the right answers you know Mm -hmm. Um, and so I started to question everything and try to, you know, talk to as many people as I could, uh, read as much as I could, particularly, you know, talk to as many old people as I could. People have lived their whole lives, you know, already. And it's like, mm-hmm. what have you learned? Because presumably most thinking people have to uh, deal with some of these um, issues. And instead of me doing all of that work and ultimately coming to the same conclusion when it's too late. Can I learn what, can I take what they've learned mm-hmm. and uh, start there and move forward, you know, seeing life more as a relay race. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think recognizing the, um, um, the limits of our own intellectual abilities and the diversity of, um, viable ideologies is interesting. And, uh, generates humility, if nothing else. That's very interesting. There is, um, I'm not remembering the, the exact statistic, but someone had done research on, you know, what is it that leads to uh, sort of extraordinary creativity? And if you look at people who have been, you know, uniquely creative, come up with something very innovative, <clears throat> and they looked at, well, what are all the different sort of common factors of this? 
And uh, one thing which they pointed to was that uh, there was a high coincidence, you couldn't say it was causal, but there was a high coincidence between uh, people who uh, come up with a, some sort of you know, novel creation and people who have spent a significant amount of time in another culture. Mm-hmm. That, that part of what has to happen is that, you know, and this is sort of where my interpretation begins, is that um, you know, they talk about creativity as uh, sort of a metaphorical intelligence to say like, this is like this is like this. Yeah. You're, you're forming kind of uncommon connections. And from, you know, I've had nothing like your immersion, but in times that I've spent in, a, a you know, uh, cultures that weren't my culture of origin, um, I've had to do that sort of associative knowledge like, oh, this is what breakfast is or, or this is how you say hello or this mm. is a sign of respect here. There's like this sort of uh, associative, uh, you know, knowledge that I've had to kind of, you're sort of forced to immerse yourself in and, and form those new connections based on a past experience. And I think that that, uh, that experience, and this is a nice transition into the, the E for Epic, which is experiential learning. Mm. Um, I, I think that that's been something that's been shown to be uh, highly generative of people forming uh, the ability to be, to be creative. But this idea of uh, the exceptionally, you know, innovative people having lived abroad—why would you not say that that's causal? Why would you say that it's merely coincidental? Um, I think because I uh, I'm only hedging because I I I, I don't remember the study that clearly, mm-hmm. so I don't want to uh, you know state something as fact yeah. when it might not have been you know. But um, um, I agree with you. I, I certainly sort of see that, you know, and um, and maybe it's part of um, part is what part of what has helped um, the United States United States be a creative country mm-hmm. is that um, everyone who is here, with the exception of indigenous populations, you know, they've had to make their way in a new world, and so I think that kind of creates that. Um, that ability or that, um, or maybe self-selects for that capacity. Um, But it's also multiple cultures that are constantly having to engage with one another and mm -hmm. share ideas. Yeah. And, and, and from my perspective with, you know, the limited experience I've had with the educational system in Europe is that I think that that's, that's part of, you know, the, the change that I see is that, the United States has become so sort of monolithic. It's become so much its own country. And mm. there is an arrogance that comes from being a large country. Um, and I notice that when I speak to my colleagues in Europe, where there, there is a, there's a baseline assumption that whatever I do in Sweden will in some way need to connect with what's happening in Denmark, which yeah. will in some way need to, you like, it's sort of like you're, you're, you're in this melting pot and, and there is, all of these different sorts of energies and cultures to bounce off of on an ongoing basis. And I think that, I think we're losing that in the United States. I, I don't know what your experience is as someone who, who comes from Europe. Yeah, Sweden is a small country. So anyone with any sort of ambition is facing outward and mm-hmm. everything we, we make is uh, made with the intention of going abroad, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so there's a sense of being part of a larger world, whereas I think America is a world unto itself, you know, yeah. um, which becomes self-referential, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the subject of creativity, 
Um, I personally think that the human mind is fundamentally incapable of truly uh, original thought. And I think when you look at the history of civilization, whether it's religion or philosophy or innovation or science or the arts, we see that every advance is made very incrementally. Mm -hmm. And even the the outliers who uh, strike us as being you know exceptionally unique in their work i think that their work is not more unique because they themselves are inherently more unique but because they seek inspiration from sources that others uh, do not which mm-hmm. is why um, i think it is a causal relationship between these uh, innovators having lived abroad I think Picasso is a good example of this because while the other modernists were sort of looking over one another's shoulders in the French cafes, mm-hmm. he was combining that tradition with African tribal masks and Greek sculpture and in pulling these different traditions together and channeling that through his creativity, he was able to create not only new works of art, but entirely new genres that mm. other artists could go on to have whole careers within. So that's what I try to do in my own creative work as well, not just to look at other things that are similar to what I am writing at the moment, but try to really um, dig into sources that others have not explored, you know, going to ancient writings and uh, foreign artistic traditions and, and so on. But that, pro- yeah, sorry. No, that, that, that's, that's really, really interesting, and I think it's a, it's a nice segue um, to the to the eye of epic uh, in terms of ingenuity, um, it, tell me some more about that. Like you know, and if perhaps the film that you're getting ready to uh, you're you're going to direct as well as write the yeah. film, um, perhaps kind of looking at some of the uh, you know unusual influences that came together to, for that film would would be like a, a useful reflection on ingenuity and what drives your creativity. Um, so. What are some of the, you know, perhaps unusual or, 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 or novel things that, that came together for this project? Um, well, the, the, the easy thing to do would be to look at, oh, what are some successful folk horror films or, you know, uh, such or, or period dramas or whatever. But those, I think whenever you look at any period piece, particularly if you take the American Western, for instance, which has been made in every decade of mm-hmm. cinema, they all portray the same time period, but yet they're completely different. You know, mm-hmm. a, a Western in the 50s is nothing like a Western in the 90s and, and so on. And I think you find that they are more indicative of the times that they were made in rather than the time that they actually depict. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I wanted to do was to really ground the film in the logic of the time, you know. Mm-hmm. And logic itself is not what should we call it, innate or objective or um, something sort of self-evident, you know, it, it, it is also something that, it is also a learned behavior, you mm-hmm. know. So 21st century logic is not very similar to, you know, 19th century rural <laughs> logic. Mm-hmm. So what I was trying to do is to go back to the... Uh, to read the original accounts of people at that time. Because um, the, the legends that the film is based on, you know, those aren't fictional. Uh, 
um, I think the English word for this genre would be folk tales, um, which is um, events that people have experienced. Uh, mm -hmm. The equivalent would be modern day uh, ghost stories. Right. You know, um, if uh, I say that um, my mother saw a ghost, you know, the idea is <clears throat> that you believe what I'm saying. It, it mm -hmm. happened to a particular person at a particular particular place and so on, uh, as opposed to some king that slayed the dragon, which we all understand. That's a fairy tale. You know, mm -hmm. we understand that it's fictional. So I was uh, looking at those accounts of people who have supposedly come into contact with with this being. And um, obviously this being didn't exist, <laughs> um, but the Swedish forest seemed to have been populated by all kinds of strange things, trolls and gnomes and mm -hmm. all of these things. Um, and it's fascinating to try to understand the, the patterns of thought and you know the the underlying values and assumptions about uh, reality, and then recognize the sort of underlying uh, psychological archetypes that are embedded in these stories, and then try to compare those to archetypes of other cultures, you know, in, in different countries, and see like, okay, this is what the spirit looks like in Sweden, but in uh, Ukraine, you know, there's mm -hmm. uh, this kind of being, and you know, in Native American folklore, this that kind of being, but they all kind of seem to hint at uh, a similar thing, and try to um, to use all of the, those bits of information as iceberg prose, you know, mm -hmm. and to try to identify the underlying or articulate the underlying um, core of it. It sounds very, um, almost like a Joseph Campbell sort of perspective where he, you know, he did a, a comparison of, you know, world myths around uh, the world and sort of found these, these common, um, you know, narrative tropes and themes which were really reflective of the um, of of the of the world the experience, monomyth. yeah, and I, I also love the uh, the connection that he made to to landscape as a, how it affected culture because you know one thing which you noticed was that um, if you had an agrarian society, um, the myths of that society would be most similar to another agrarian society, regardless of whether or not that society was in a common time period or in a common um, location. So it, it sort of talked about the nature of human spirit experience as it related to uh, you know, the physical landscape and the way of life. It's almost like um, the stories you know, came up from the ground yeah. because they're reflective of the human experience um, in that way of living and being. Um, yeah, I think when you look at rural Swedish folklore, you know, you're so much at the mercy of nature. Uh, mm. You're living off the land um, and uh, you're dependent upon the the forces of, of nature. You know, is it going to rain? Is it going to be sunshine? And, uh, are you gonna, if your crops grow well, then you're going to live well. If, if they don't grow, then you're going to die, you know. Um, and yet the human being has very limited control over that, um, which creates <clears throat> a lot of anxiety, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of folklore comes down to like ways of trying to predict or control nature, you know, with uh, which is why they had all these kind of magical practices and such, and fathomed, you know, these human-like beings that were in control of various things. So this mm. this human-like creature controls the water. This is human-like creature controls the crops and so on. 
<laughs> to try to make sense of a world that they don't understand. Yeah, that, that's reminding me of, um, there's a quote by the, um, the American writer James Baldwin. He said that the root cause of language is to control the world by describing it. Yeah. Yeah, or at least to, uh, to comprehend it mm -hmm. by categorization. It, that is fascinating, too, you know, when, when you live in one culture and then another to realize what values certain words contain and even uh, you know what you recognize <clears throat> obviously like we have something like one or a couple of words for snow but then mm -hmm. you know the cultures that live in um, that uh, like Eskimo peoples and so on they have I don't know 20 40 words for yeah. for snow um, and even same with Swedish and English like pigeon and dove are two different birds you know in mm -hmm. english but they're one bird in <laughs> swedish squid and octopus two different animals in english but they're one in swedish and so on um then you sort of start to realize that reality itself is much more like uh, a, a gray scale you know and you try to arbitrarily categorize the, the world through language um but you're constantly coming up Uh, coming up against the limitations of such a way of thinking. Um, you've, you've said you said two things, which I think are really interesting. And 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 well, you said more than two things that were interesting. The whole thing's really interesting. But when you were talking about um, your process on this film, um, you were talking about you really wanted to make your your best effort to understand this world in this world's terms, yeah. like from this times. And, um, and you also said that what you notice about, uh, about films that are period films is that they most oftentimes are referential of the time in which they are made. Yeah. Um, and not so much the time in which they, uh, took place. So, um, I wonder if, 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 um, if that kind of Collision was was a place where a lot of your creativity happened, where you were at the same time trying to understand what is this place in time, um, and at the same time, you know, what is the sort of modern perspective that you bring to that? What's what's the what what was what might your film have to say about your experience of our world now? I don't know that a film, that every film needs to say something about the world as it is now. Um, that's why I'm so annoyed by the Swedish Film Institute, <laughs> because they say that every film needs to reflect a Sweden of today that everyone can see themselves in. And uh, that strikes me as being pretty stupid. Um, because I think when you, if you can make a film that shows, you know, a 19th century Sweden that is almost alien today. Mm -hmm. It puts the modern society in perspective. And just like the experience of living abroad, you realize um, how uh, fragile some of these modern ideas are and how young they are, you know, mm -hmm. the idea of... Uh, men and women being equal and uh, the, the idea of social justice and uh, any kind of social safety net and all these things that we take for granted when you realize mm -hmm. 
how young they are. I think it makes you see the world in a different uh, way. Um, and uh, you know, in in Sweden, we have a lot of uh, refugees uh, from various war-torn parts of the world, <coughs> um, and they tend to, you know, come with religious, you know, backgrounds that are not very compatible with modern Swedish values. But when you go back just, you know, 100 years uh, in our own history, we real you realize that we were, you know, living under the exact same conditions, you know, with the same type of um, views of the world and, uh, and of God and all of these things. So I think it um, it puts the modern world into perspective. That's really fascinating. I, um, one thing which I noticed just about um, it, not so much a film that we've talked about so far, but one of your your early films, um, which was uh, much more focused on um, uh, sort of you know life in New York City and, and got a lot of attention from uh, CNN. Um, um, we'd love to talk a little bit about community impact and how it is that uh, a modern storyteller can really uh, support consciousness raising, can mm. support, you know, uh, not just uh, entertaining the world or reflecting the world, but also how it can impact the world. Um, what thoughts might you have about that? Um, I think um, the history of both literature and cinema provide uh, ample examples of, you know, works that have uh, shaped uh, politics and social attitudes. Um, so I do believe that uh, a film still has that potential, even though now um, the media landscape uh, is so expansive that mm -hmm. obviously a film in you know the 1930s. Uh, reached you know a wider segment of the population sure. than, than today when everybody is listening to different things and so on <clears throat> so maybe a single work doesn't have as much impact today as it might have had you know 100 years ago um but um it i think it's more so like every work is like a drop of rain you know and so if i make a film that has a particular message and then you make a podcast and mm -hmm. then someone else writes a book and eventually you know if enough people are pulling in the same direction you can change society mm -hmm. it's you're obviously older than i am but uh, it was fascinating because i think a lot of people myself including tend to think that we're sort of living at the end of history Mm. and that the things have been sort of settled and now things are is everything is what it is and that uh, it's always going to be this way and it was fascinating to you know live through the black lives matter movement and the me too movement because in those like 3 years the world changed and it was fascinating to to see that that uh, that can still happen you know yeah i mean you know one thing which i find just very exciting about you know students that I work with who are younger and um, you know what I see coming forward as uh, as a level of of idealism a level of uh, social engagement and social interest um, and you know to be candid a, a level of of outrage with the world that um, 
let's say my generation has left. Um, uh, it's one of the, the, the few things that I look to as a hopeful sign <laughs> because I think that um, there is so much, um, so many, you know, pieces of information that the world continues to accelerate. There's so many uh, disruptions of our attention. Um, there's so many um, outlets for, um, for us to uh, be entertained as opposed to engaged. And, um, and, I, and I, I think it's such a positive reaction uh, for the upcoming generation to say, you know, no, you know, we will not simply be comfortable. We will not simply, um, you know, live our lives on the couch. You know, yeah. we, we will get engaged. We will, we will make change. Um, yeah. The only word of caution <laughs> that I would give young idealists is to remember to think independently, you know, because mm -hmm. I think it's human beings, this is going to sound misanthropic, but it's not. But <laughs> I think human beings are a flock animal, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we're, it's crucial to our survival, you know, to be, to be liked and to belong and so on, or at least it has been for, you know, the previous several hundred thousand years of human history. So I think we're organized in, uh, in that way. Um, but uh, it leads to this kind of mob mentality, you know. Mm -hmm. And so when a particular ideology get, gets wind, you know, everybody just piles on and rush in that one direction without ever stopping to to think, you know. And that can be quite dangerous um, because you risk sort of running everybody off a cliff. So I think a little bit of reflection and, again, Humility, you know, not assuming that mm -hmm. the ideology of the tribe is inherently the the right one, um, and separate intentions from um, method, or uh, might be wise as well to be like, okay, what are we actually trying to achieve, and are mm -hmm. these methods uh, necessarily going to get us there? Um, one thing that makes me very sad is the polarization you know mm. that is happening and it's it there's no room for nuance um today everybody uh, just you're either with or against and i think that's exceptionally dangerous and i really like to you know go from different camps mm -hmm. um now i've uh, i've started dipping my toe into the the right-wing media outlets and it's really um uh, what was the word you were using earlier it's like um uh, it's very difficult to make sense of the world because it's like okay you're you're listening to uh or i, I you know read the economist and the new york times and npr mm -hmm. and so on and you get one version of reality and then you listen to these people and then you get a completely different version of reality and both portray the other side as being uh, like the greatest threat to democracy and to right. uh, everything that is uh, sacred in the world. Um, so they both really see themselves as fighting, um, you know, the, the, ver the, the righteous mm -hmm. fight and that the other pose an existential threat. And it's like, 
it's very dangerous. <laughs> you know, um, I, I would like there to be more communication, you know, to try to understand that, or at least come to some sort of agreement about what it is, what kind of world we'd like to live in. That would be grand. I mean, I, I, I've had the experience of, of driving in the U.S. And uh, in the U.S., typically, uh, especially in the, um, you know, in, in the north and on the coasts, uh, on the lower end of the radio dial um, is where you will tend to find national public radio. Mm. And so I was driving from, um, I think, New York down to Texas. And what I found was, you know, as I you know, got south of the Mason-Dixon line, which was the line of hostilities during the Civil War, that the NPR stations started to go away <laughs> and they started to be replaced by uh, oftentimes sort of like Christian yeah. uh, fundamentalists. And I was just like, it's sort of a light bulb went off in yeah. my head. And I was like, that's so interesting that this part of my inner bandwidth that yeah. has been devoted towards this sort of you know, liberal, democratic r reflection on uh, different things in the world, diverse perspectives, that that same piece of bandwidth was in this other part of the country completely doted to reflecting a different yeah. perspective. And, um, and that, was very, that was very fraught. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, we're living in a world where, you know, increasingly... Uh, the geography, actually the, the physical geography of things uh, is almost less and less important, yeah. which requires the, the ideological geography to become more and more demarcated. And, um, you know, one thing which uh, I think a lot about is that as technology accelerates, um, that ends up being our focus. And what we lose track of is that, you know, we are still very much the same homo sapiens. Yeah that, uh, you know, grew up uh, in tribal units. And, and if you disagreed with your tribe, that would lead to death. Like if you did not uphold the power, like if you were to be um, abandoned by your tribe, yeah. you would not survive. Um, and, um, and I think that we still have those same sort of survival instincts, but now they are playing out you know, in in a very different world, and um, I think fondly of at least my image of uh, like these kind of political discussions in the '60s and '70s and so on with uh, like Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, and it would be mm -hmm. this you know hour-long uh, talk show where these two very intelligent people from different sides of the aisle could sit and, and debate. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like that really exists anymore. It's like everybody's just talking to their own bubbles, right. you know, and portray, the, make a straw man out, out of the other side. But I, I had a similar experience when I've driven across America twice. And the first time it was, um, I, have, I apologize to Republican listeners. <laughs> when I was um, younger, uh, I, I really had um, a very negative uh, idea of Republicans, because looking at the the policies and so on, it just felt like they're trying to undo all the the good things. Um, and then when I drove across America, and you come into these small towns, and you kind of realize that, like, of course, if you live in this kind of little community and you've never 
you know, engaged with the outside world and your only sources of influence is like the church and your Fox News and, you know, football and and such. And that is the, the world as it is presented to you. Like, of mm-hmm. course, you're going to have these ideas. It, it doesn't mean that they are less good as human beings or that mm-hmm. they have some sort of malicious intent you know it's just that the world as it is reflected back to them it, it looks very different than the world that I had seen it's interesting I mean um, I wonder if if things are necessarily so different now in the quote-unquote modern world as they were you know in the the late 1800s of your film mm-hmm. you know um, I think we're still living at a time where we tend to project our fears yeah and um, and our anger and our and our lust and our greed and all those feelings which are not um, socially acceptable uh, onto another. Yeah. You know the the unreal other. Yeah. And you know while we may not have um, actual phantoms running through the woods, um, I think the 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 impulse to demonize. Yeah. Uh, and project those fears, concerns, angers, angsts. Uh, on another, we just call it political debate. <laughs> yeah, but I completely agree. The, uh, we've always had an other, you know, that is uh, uh, demonized. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it very fascinating about, you know, the, the idea of us and them. You know, who is us and, and who is them? Um, and when you go back to 19th century Sweden, it's like us is this little community and right. them is the next community in the town over. You know? yeah. And then eventually it's like, okay, us is the country. Mm-hmm. And then later us is Europe. And then it's like, okay, us is sort of Christian, the Christian world, you know? And, right. and, and, and that sort of widens. And I guess that is a, um, a positive trend that that mm-hmm. us is getting wider and wider. Um, but also, I thought it was fascinating at this time that the film is set in that, like, um, all of the the negative things that were happening uh, that were inexplicable, uh, like if the weather turned bad mm. or so, uh, it was thought that it was either the Sami people, which is the Swedish indigenous population, mm-hmm. or the Finns, uh, people, immigrants from Finland. Uh, those were the ones who were uh, practicing black magic and were turning the, the forces of nature against the the Swedes. Um, and that's, you know, the echoes to, to today, obviously, when it's like, oh, the American economy is struggling. So it's like, it's the, these immigrants that are mm-hmm. <laughs> taking right. the jobs or whatever. It's like these uh, um, processes that are too complex to comprehend. It's, mm-hmm. it's much more satisfactory to point to some group of other people and say it's their fault and it's okay then you can channel that frustration against that particular people but it was interesting because when I in the script uh, I depicted some of that racism mm-hmm. when something happened that they didn't understand and they were uh, these farmers were um, blaming the uh, the Sami and then but then I got uh, some uh, criticism of like oh it's you know uh, you can't show that mm. um, because the, I guess the idea is that that is racist whereas to me it's like that's the whole point you know mm. um, 
and that is a problem that I think we see in a lot of films and television of today is you try to cleanse the past of all mm. of this mm-hmm. sexism and homophobia and racism um, in an attempt to present a more aspirational past mm-hmm. but um, to my mind uh, you're erasing a um, a past that still uh, has implications today you know and so mm-hmm. uh, I think you're doing oppressed people a tremendous injustice by saying like no no no, no we were never homophobic people yeah. have always been able to to live as they please and da 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 I think that's a grave moral error, um, albeit with good intentions. Yeah, there's there's some quote which I I'm forgetting who which writer said this, um, but it was something to the effect of like you know the past isn't over, mm. the past isn't even past. Mm. You know that uh, that all of all that has been and and the resonance of of how different people have worked with each other, uh, worked against each other, still resonates. Um, you know, you're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, there was um, a book called My Grandmother's Hands, which was really a, a sort of a somatic perspective on a lot of these societal forces. And he talked about, you know, the history that was held in white bodies and black bodies and, and blue bodies, meaning the, the bodies of police and the mm. inherited trauma that was present in these interactions which were happening uh, you know, and continue to happen and resonate. Um, so it's, I'll be very, very interested to see your film and to see the ways in which the, the past echoes through um, what you're doing. Um, I think the only uh, pillar of epic that we haven't uh, touched upon is um, uh, the P of epic, which is sort of a, a pause practice. Mm. Um, I, I can tell that you are, uh, you have lots of ideas and lots of creativity coursing through you. Um, are there things that you do to uh, support your balance or support your your ability to, to to rest and recharge and to to see things in a new and creative way? Do you have a, a meditation practice or something that you use to ground you? Well, th- that has been the biggest struggle for me personally is to stop working. You know, um, but. Uh, Last year, I started doing bonsai trees, <laughs> which I found to be very meditative. Um, and this year, I've started taking Sundays off, mm. and I've started exercising, <laughs> mm-hmm. which sounds obvious, but uh, um, uh, it feels like part of you is wired to like uh, it. You feel guilty, you know, for taking a day off, but I think it only serves to make you more productive particularly now um, that I'm in my 30s you know when when you're in your 20s you can just go 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 you know Mm -hmm. uh, every hour of every day Um, but at this age I feel like if I just keep working every single day without taking any kind of weekend um, your mind just gets into this kind of fog you know um, and so you might be working a lot of hours, but you get increasingly less productive. Um, so I've started taking, trying to take some intentional pauses. Um, 
but it's hard to not do anything when you're pausing so you need to do something else which is why I think bonsai trees is great or, or you know playing some sort of sport now that I've been in Venice I've been going down and playing basketball which on the beach which I love you know because mm-hmm. you just go down and shoot and then eventually someone will come up and ask if you want to play one-on-one and then you can just play for however long you like and then go back to work and that has been helpful I think excellent um, well thank you so much for sharing this time and, and sharing these thoughts and um, it's a fascinating conversation um, if uh, if listeners would like to be able to follow you or know more about your work um, where's the best place for them to find you well my name is Nicholas Gillis N-I-C-L-A-S G-I-L-L-I-S and um, I have a website Instagram and all the things excellent excellent well thank you very much and thank you so much welcome to the the Epic Summit thank you for having me yeah take care the Epic Impact Society is a nonprofit organization building a community of international professionals from a cross-pollinization of industries who promote creative leadership, ingenuity, and social innovation through arts, experiential learning, and humanitarian engagement. To stay up to date on all things Epic, find us at epicimpactsociety.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. <laughs>